0: day, which I do encourage you to do that. Um, We're going to have another chiasm I want to share with you, and rather than having the board up here, I've just put some slides together to help show you some things. I want to begin transitioning from where we've been, Genesis 1 through 11, to Genesis 12. We're actually going to still be in Genesis 1 through 11. Ken read us what is typically the call of Abram. Um, Abram is really the emphasis of the rest of this series and his family, so we're going to spend more time on Abram, um, who will be renamed Abraham, and then we're going to touch on his family um, after we really spend some time in, in his life. Uh, and so today is part one of his call, and I think there are two things that really set him apart as to why Abram was called. I think it's important for us today, and but it's also important for us to understand what is the significance of this call. We tend to think, well, God just picked him. But if you'll remember, God has been incredibly intentional up until this moment. We've looked at a number of chiasms, and if you haven't been here, as we've talked about those, a chiasm is a poetic literary tool in which repetition is used to demonstrate what the main point of the story is. And sometimes that structure looks like A, B, C, and then that same structure is repeated A, B, C. We saw that in the story of creation, days one, two, and three, very closely parallel day four, five, and six. Sometimes that uh, structure is A, B, C, and then C, B, A, a complete mirroring. But within the the center of the chiasm, we find a treasure. And we're going to discover that, and it may surprise you what that center of the chiasm is today. But then we're going to dive into the story, and we're going to look at what really set Abram apart. Because at this point, a lot of people this is and, and if you're reading through Genesis, at this point, we basically are seeing just lots of genealogies after the Tower of Babel, which is what we talked about last week. So so humanity is growing, replicating. People are having kids, families are getting bigger. And why Abram? We tend to just think, well, because God wanted it to be Abram. But what if there was something about Abram that God said uh, you're the person that I want to use, and I think there is, um, as I mentioned before, a lot of what I'm sharing with you is not my original stuff. Um, I have uh, really been awoken to a lot of things that we miss in our Western way of reading Scripture by studying other teachers and rabbis, especially those of the Jewish faith, even if they don't profess Christianity, because they help us to understand the Old Testament in a way that we. What's the plot point? What's the climax? What's the main thing of the story that I need to know? And that's one of the reasons that they read the Bible and think, well, it's just not applicable to to today. It's because we read it as if it's a history story um, that happened then, but our lives are so different. And yet what I hope you've seen through our study of Genesis 1 through 11, uh, just in these last three weeks, we haven't done an exhaustive one, but just in the last three weeks, that this is incredibly applicable because the writers of Scripture are incredibly deep and they are layering story upon story upon story. And when we peel back the layers and find the thing they want us to know, they are absolutely applicable to us today. For example, um, we looked at the story of the fall and we found that the point was not that humanity messed up and God is mad and now punishing us. The, the center of the chiasm points us to the question of God asking, where are you? And that is God's question to ask because we moved, God did not. But he also asked another incredibly important question there when he's talking to Adam and Eve and he asked them, who have you been listening to? Could we benefit today from reading the story of creation and consistently asking ourselves, who are we listening to? Who has influence in our lives? Who is moving in our lives today? And so I think that's incredibly applicable. We looked at the story of the flood and we think that the point of the story is this incredible story about God judging the world, flooding the earth, and then Noah rescuing the animals and humanity. And that's absolutely part of the story. But we found that the center of the chiasm of that story that spans several chapters is, a, is one verse in which it says God remembered Noah. And does it bring you hope that God in that moment remembered Noah because God is still remembering us. Maybe maybe even right now you're going through a hard time, you're going through a difficult season, and you just hope God remembers you. And what we discovered was that God didn't forget. It just means that God had Noah on His mind. And God has us on His mind even today. These things, these truths are applicable even if we're like, I don't know how the story of the flood is and applies to me today. Well, it does apply because God is still remembering you we looked at the tower of Babel last week and that god will frustrate our our efforts to move away from him because he wants us to draw us back to him now a lot of the way of reading that story may uh, help especially you if you have grown up in a religious system where punishment is really one of the main characteristics of god he wants to judge and he wants to punish and if you grew up in that system thinking, well, I just better not mess up or God's going to come get me. Or at very least, He's not going to help me when life gets hard. But when we read over and over in these passages, is God saying, I want you with me. I want, to, I want to be a part of your life. I want you to be with me. Which is not the story of punishment, even though we certainly find that there are consequences to our actions. If we're going to enter into this first part, and I've, I've titled... At uh, our sermon today, why Abram Part One, because I think there are two parts, and we 're going to talk about the second part next week and in order to do that, I think we need to back up to Genesis chapter eleven and if you want to follow along, you can follow along on you version if you want to do some extra learning, uh, we did some work in the Bible project last week, that will come up again later, uh, but the Bema podcast is where a lot of this stuff, uh, Marty Solomon has laid this out and I got to tell you, um, the first week we did this, if you will look up a picture of Marty Solomon, he looks just like Ken Brown, who just read our scripture. And so I'm over here, I'm up here talking about Marty Solomon. I look back, and Ken used to have long hair, and he shaved it off just like Marty Solomon did. I thought, how does he know that we're talking about him today? He's like in the room today, looks just like him. Anyways, uh, you can look him up. I thought that was interesting. But you can find that on the Beema podcast. He was a um, is a Christian who visited Israel, and in his travels and talking with some of the Jewish teachers of the day, he he found himself ashamed by how little he knew about Jesus and about the Bible. In talking to someone who didn't necessarily even believe Jesus is his savior. He even says, they knew more about Jesus than I do, and I believe he's the savior of the world. And it led him on a journey to discover, what have I missed? And in doing that, he shares that with us in that podcast. It's been very helpful for me and many others. Um, we've talked about, uh, uh, I know Ashley, is, she's a big BEMA pod. She's been through a lot more of it than I have. And so we're we're talking about starting. They There are different BEMA podcast groups all around the country where they just listen to an episode and then just get around, get together and talk about it. So we may, we're talking about the possibility of starting one of those groups um, where we, this kind of iron sharpening iron, let's hear these things and let's figure them out and what does that mean for us today? I'd love for, to see that happen here. But in order to really talk about why Abram, because we sometimes think that God is very arbitrary. Why does he bless them and not me? <laughs> right? We, we make God very transactional. And I do not in any one way want to portray God as transactional today because God can choose whoever God wants. But there's something about Abraham that we often miss in the story that demonstrates the heart of Christ that we see throughout the New Testament. But we, it's the heart of God that we see throughout the Old Testament too. And for me, I believe it is one of the most necessary things for us to be able to move forward as a church is to embrace this this characteristic of Abram. And then I want to address what may be the elephant in the room today um, that I think fits in this as well, which is the Supreme Court decision that happened this week. So I don't know if you're already regretting being here today, but I we've got a lot to talk about. And Abram is fertile soil for us to have all of these conversations all right so we're going to go back up to genesis chapter 11 verse 27 to through um, 32 if you want to read with me Uh, this is before the passage that ken just read and um, it sets up abram who he is and why he is important now these are the generations of terah terah fathered abram nahor and haran three brothers and Haran fathered Lot, familiar name. We're going to see Lot again later in the story. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarah, and, or Sarai and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Ishka. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now you may be wondering, how are we going to get that much information out of a genealogy? And in order to do that, we're going to have to look at it through Eastern Jewish eyes to understand what the author is trying to say here. So I've got a number of slides I put together. thought it would be easier than using the whiteboard. And as we come to this initial story, we have kind of the the father of the family, Terah. And then Terah has three sons. Next slide. Abram, Nahor, Nahor and haran now when we come to the next part of this story next slide we find that haran has three kids milka ishka and lot all right everybody soaking that in why does that even matter then we find out that haran dies next slide and what that ends up doing is leaving his three kids, two girls and a boy, and they no longer have a father to look after them and to take care of them. And we don't really worry about lots. What we find when we look at genealogies in the Bible is usually they're going to talk about men, not women. They're going to talk about the father of the lineage, and the lineage passes down through the father rather than the mother, and that's why we often don't see women in in genealogies one of the one of the uh, things you'll notice in much of scripture there are a lot tend to be lots of women in genealogies and while christianity over the years has been co-opted and changed and adjusted to fit a more male dominant culture uh, in this time and in this culture women were celebrated much more than they were in surrounding nations and they were held up in these genealogies for a reason so when we see a woman in the genealogy, it is something that is important and we need to take care and we need to, to take care to understand why they're there. But in that culture, if you were a young woman, your future was either in your father or in your husband. This is one of the reasons that writs of divorce were given because women were beginning to be abused in the way that men would kind of use them up and then divorce them and then they would be destitute god said that is not that is not how i designed marriage that is not what uh, humanity is supposed to be that is not the image of god so at least give them a way to move on to another family that someone else will love them and take care of them so haran is gone Lot we're not particularly worried about because the men tend to figure it out, right? Not because the women can't figure it out, but the culture is geared such that Lot's going to be looked at as the head of a family, not someone who is dependent on someone else. So now we have Milcah and we have Iska, and we will find throughout Scripture this idea uh, that we call a kinsman redeemer. The idea of a kinsman redeemer is when um, a female within the family loses her father or her husband and there is no one else to take care of them and someone else in the family will take them in to their family and care for them. Now one of the, probably the most famous kinsman redeemer that we read about um, is that of Ruth and Esther and one of the, or not Esther but Ruth, and one of the Probably most significant kinsmen redeemers theologically that we have in Scripture is Jesus, because Jesus is said to be our kinsman redeemer, and yet Abram or Abraham and Nahor in this scenario must become kinsmen redeemers, for these girls. But that's not how the story seems to go. A kinsman redeemer takes someone within the family that is in need and has no one else to take care of them and says, You are now part of my family. They may marry them. They may come and just be a part of their family. The next part of the story says that Abram and Nahor take wives, and we have this new character that seems to introduce themselves, and her name is Sarai. Now how does she fit in the rest of this story? Well, we're going to try to figure that out. But Abram marries Sarai. Nahor marries Milcah. Now... As we go through this story, if you have been following us in our study of chiasm, this just consistent literary tool we find throughout the Old and the New Testament, we can find what we have discovered is a treasure in the middle of this passage. All of this matters, and the question that we have to ask is, why is this genealogy important? Why spend the time why share this in the story? Next slide. If we go to the chiasm, this is what we find. And we find an A, B, C, D, D, C, B, A chiastic pattern in which at and, and verse 28, Haran died before his father Terah. And then in verse 32, we see the mirror Terah died in Haran b at the top we find this happened in the land of his birth in verse 28 and verse 31 we find a mirroring to the land of canaan point d or c in the ur of chaldeans c prime we can also see from the ur of chaldeans a mirroring we see this mirroring happening in this story d And Abram and Nahor took wives, in verse 29. And Terah took his son Abram and Lot, in verse 31, a mirroring. And we come to the treasure that says, but Sarai was barren. She had no child. Now, why is that the treasure in the story? Right? When I've read this story most of my life, I read this story and I go, that's a shame. That's interesting. And most of the time when we read that story, what we assume is because scriptures talk about sarah quite a bit she is said to be one of the most beautiful women who have ever walked the earth and it says that in multiple places in scripture that her beauty was beyond compare and when we begin to look at some of the later stories of why you know abram abraham abram's going to become abraham but at this point he's still abram he's going to make some weird choices along the way and one of them to save his own neck basically says this is my sister and not my wife and someone else marries her (laughs) and one of the questions we're going to ask is why did that happen why did he do that and why would they marry her and one of the the reasons is because this woman apparently was beautiful just absolutely beautiful very attractive but why is her barrenness so important we read this story and we assume that abram didn't know this and he married her and somewhere down the road found out she was barren. And is that actually what happened? Well, there's another literary tool that we find in Old Testament Jewish history, and that is that uh, there is a commentary that went along with the text itself, and that was called a midrash midrash is a Jewish commentary put together by Jewish rabbis that would accompany the scriptures. And Jews and early Christians would have read the early Old Testament scriptures with a midrash, which is kind of a commentary on explaining this text and its significance. We don't typically read the midrash, though there's lots of stuff you can glean from the midrash. But in the midrash, it doesn't say that Abraham married Ishka. It says that Abraham married or Sarah, it says that Abraham mar- married Ishka. So what's going on here? Let's go to the next slide. So now we have Abraham marrying Sarai, we have Nahor marrying Milka Milka, and we have Ishka, we're not real sure why she's even mentioned here other than she's just one of the sisters. And then we have Lot, which at this point is a mute point. That's just interesting. He'll come in later in the story. But the Midrash seems to say that Abram didn't marry Sarai, Abram married Ishka. And this is one of the beauty, beauties of listening to others who spend their whole lives studying this stuff. We go to the next slide, we find that the name Ishka in Chaldean, which is where they lived, means my princess. Yet Sarai in Hebrew also means my princess. And so Jewish rabbis believe that Sarai and Ishka are the same person. Now why does that matter? Why does it matter that Ishka and Sarah... And and how does that apply to God's characteristic of what He's looking for? And exactly what why does any of this matter? And it matters for a number of reasons. One of those is that Abram, listed first, is the oldest. The oldest had a responsibility in the family in which the oldest... Um, was responsible for carrying on the lineage one of our uh, favorite movies and and one of my favorite soundtracks is Hamilton I don't know if any of you have watched Hamilton it's a lot of fun and um, Alexander Hamilton ends up marrying one sister but he's really attracted to another sister and the other sister is attracted to him as well but she's the oldest sister and with no sons she could not marry him because he was poor and she felt like she had to marry up and marry up in social class. She had to marry up in wealth. She had to carry on the lineage of her family and she felt like Alexander Hamilton wouldn't be the right person to do that even though she, at least the musical, um, implies that she was in love with him. The oldest carried on the line and have for thousands of years. And so the emphasis on what the oldest did was important. The oldest would have to marry first. We find that story later with Jacob and Rachel and Leah and that whole story, which we'll get to. It was important that Abram chose well. But yet the center of the chiasm said what? Sarai was barren. Why is that the center of the story? And why is it at this point in the story It's always been a value within Christianity. It's always been a value within Judaism that sexual intercourse was held strictly for husbands and wives. Always been the case. In fact, there are laws in place that if you get married and you find out uh, your wife's not a virgin, then there are repercussions. Interestingly, there are no reverse repercussions if the guy's found not to be a virgin, right? So that's not good. But this is always the thing. So the question is, why are we talking about her barrenness? Because you know what? Someone's got to have at least tried to have kids before anyone can determine that they're barren. Now for a woman, this was... This was a, a point of great shame. A lot of value, and some women still feel this today. I don't believe this is what God wants us to feel, but God still feel that the bearing of children is where their identity and value comes in. And it... <laughs> Your value is so much deeper than that. The fact that you bear the image of God, whether male or female, you are worthy of value and honor. You bear God's image. And we see this in so many places still that sexuality is the place in which our identity lies. If you watch Facebook Reels or if you're on TikTok, you see men and women constantly trying to look sexually attractive either with as little clothes as possible or as suggestive dances as possible or just outright saying sexual things as possible so that they will be viewed as sexually attractive and someone that someone would want to be with and yet I don't want my daughter to feel that her value is in someone wanting to have sex with her. And I don't think any of you want your daughters to feel that way either. How do they know that Sarah is barren? There has to be, in this story, the expectation that at some point, this she is older and she has already been married. She has already attempted to have children and for whatever reason she is now single and relying upon her father to take care of her. And with the death of her father... There is no one to take care of her unless there's a kinsman redeemer. And there are two people that need to be taken care of in that way. There are two sisters that are listed in that genealogy. And one is Ishka and one is Milka. And what the text tells us is that Nahor chose the one who was not barren and Abram chose the one who was, even though Abram as the oldest would have been the one to choose first. And his responsibility would have been to choose someone that would carry his lineage. And what we find is that if we put all of these pieces together, we find Abram looking at Sarai and saying, I will sacrifice my lineage because you need someone to care for you. And in this we find a character trait that perhaps had been seen before and perhaps haven't, hadn't been seen before, but Abram was more interested in caring for someone else's needs than his own and what Marty Solomon says is, God immediately entered his story. That's us soak in. Abram was more interested in caring for someone else's needs than his own, and God immediately enters his story. Now, you could say, well, you know, they talk about how beautiful she was. Maybe he wasn't really thinking about her. But that's not how that culture worked. That's not how that culture worked. Like you, Everyone would look at Abram and go, what are you doing? You're killing your lineage. What are you doing here? This was culturally expected. And there's a part of caring for his own family and carrying on with that lineage. And he's essentially letting his younger brother Nahor be the one that would carry on that lineage. Which is going to become more important in this story later. If you know this story, God says... What Ken read earlier, I'm gonna. A nation is gonna be born from you and Sarah. And of course, he's gonna screw that up too. We'll get to that. What does it look like in a world filled with people who are willing to give up substantially for the needs of others? What does your life look like if your friends and your family are willing to sacrifice greatly when you are in need. I think this is one of the reasons that Abram is called. Because God can work with people who are willing to sacrifice for the good of others. But when we are focused primarily and wholly on our own needs, what we have a tendency to do is we we ignore what's going on with others and God seems to be absent. I think this is one of the reasons that some of us give up on prayer. If our prayer is predominantly and and only about our personal needs and we never see the hurt and the pain in others and that we need to pray for them, is God encouraged to continue us along this delusion that this is what God wants? We saw in the Tower of Babel that when people were moving away from Him, He would intervene to stop that to bring them back. Did he not do that for us? Now, if you think, well, Mark, that's interesting and that makes a good sermon and you can twist that to make that sound good, but you know, how about let's look at the rest of Scripture and we'll see the same principle played out over and over and over and over and over again. Of course we can go straight to Jesus and we can see that he gave his life for us. Of course we can see that. But we also can look at Jesus' teachings. And we can find that Jesus said things like... Um, Love your neighbor as yourself. We can see things like, uh, there's no greater love that someone can have for another than they would give their life up for a friend. We see Kinsman Redeemer language throughout the Old and the New Testament. In which this is not your problem, but you should make it your problem. We see it in places, this idea of sacrifice, which is very un-American in the sense of, him, of Jesus saying, now pick up your cross and follow me. We see this language everywhere, this value and this entirety of the gospel that says we are here for others. When we look through the, the uh, Sermon on the Mount, we we discovered that the prayer that Jesus encouraged them to pray was one that said, give us this day our daily daily bread. And the expectation there would be this. I have my daily bread, but I'm praying for us to have ours, and I know you don't, but I could give you some of mine, because I have enough. There's a community side to the Lord's Prayer. It's community. It's not individualistic. And what we find in the life and story of Abram is a man who said, I will give up all of the expectations. I will not be the first, I will not be the one to carry on our lineage. I will pass along my responsibility and my privilege to another. And we're actually going to see him do this over and over again in his story. We're going to see Abraham when he has the opportunity. A perfect a perfect illustration is when he and Lot are coming together and it's, It's time to separate. And they're looking over all the land. And God has promised this nation through Abraham, not through Lot. But Abraham looks to Lot and he says, you know what? You pick any of this that you want and I'll take what's left. We see this in his life over and over and over again. That I will allow you to have the better portion than me. What would the church look like if the church was full of people that embodied this idea? What would it look like? We have a tendency to believe that this is all about us. In fact, I think one of the big challenges we have in the church coming out of this pandemic, and it's not—it's not just us. It's like it's just people. Like one of the problems people have, because I just talk to people over and over and over again. One of the problems people have is we. We were telling you, and you were hearing, and we were all hearing, if you want to love other people, separate yourself and just take care of yourself. That's the way we're going to love other people. And we did that for a couple of years. And so now it's like, well, I'm kind of, you know, I've kind of enjoyed this uh, just taking care of myself. You know, it feels kind of good. I'm not sure I really want to, you know, engage again in the same level I did before. I think I, I kind of like this. And it feels weird and different. You know the psychologists tell us you form a new habit in 30 days, but what do you you know form in, in 700 days? All kinds of new patterns. The very center of the call of Abraham is the call of someone who says, "There is something better to be done here than just taking care of myself." God can work with people that are willing to sacrifice for the good of others. And we're going to see that over and over and over again. This is the story of Jesus. We read in Acts 2, we read things like the early church, they sold everything they had, everything they had in common, so no one had any need. I mean, that's sacrifice. Can you imagine if we did that? Like next week, okay, here's what we're going to do. Next week I want you to bring your balance sheets, I want you to bring your assets and your liabilities, and we're gonna sell everybody's assets, we're gonna take care of everybody's liabilities, and we're all gonna just have the same. And you're probably gonna to have to sell your house because if you got a really nice house, we got some people who don't have a very nice house, we're gonna to try to bump them up, but you're gonna to have to downsize. Can you imagine what we did? You you know how many people would be here next week? You know how many people would be here next week. Right? I, I don't I wouldn't I don't think I'd be here next week, right? Do you what? Yeah yeah, I got a small house. I'd be here, you know, <laughs> right? But that's what—that's what—that's what they did in the early church, and it is the same principle. That if I have to do without, so that someone else needs something, I'll do without. You see, this just over and over in Scripture. Scripture says, "Pure and undefiled religion is to do what." Take care of who? Widows and orphans. One of the things that we um have to be aware of if we are gonna move forward as a church and and well I don't wanna I don't wanna uh be overly dramatic. But I I will say this, one of the things we have to do if we are going to move forward as a church is we have to embrace this ethic. When a guest walks in the door, they don't wear a t-shirt with all their brokenness on it. All under the skin. And if our mindset in the church is, Has good music or good teaching. Now let's go to lunch. And we are not here to look under the skin at the brokenness that others are bringing and that we aren't willing to go to them and talk to them and sit with them and love them. And if they bring kids, we care for their kids and childcare. Or we call them during the week and say, How are you doing? If we're not doing that, we're not the church. One of the things we're struggling with today is we've gotten really good, and we're not. I, I say we like to include we, us in this. We, we're not really great at it. We're pretty good, but we're not really great at it, is the uh, worship experience. We used to call it that when we first started the church. We wanted to be a worship experience, and we didn't see it this way then, but over the years we saw the results of that kind of thinking, and what we found is is that people would come if the music was good and the sermon was good, but then they wouldn't if it wasn't. And what I have found in my own faith is that worship is vitally important. But it is it pales in comparison to the daily just working out our faith with each other. With the people that don't even come here. <laughs> like people that I work with. i got to work it out with them. And people have different perspectives than me. I've got to work it out with them. People who... Uh, need something from me. I need to work it out with them. And people that I need something from them, we got to work it out together. There is a there is, is just an, a, an organicness to the church that is based around this crazy concept about loving each other. And when Jesus said, if you want to know what the church is about, if you want to know what I'm about, if you want to know what all of this is about, and, and as we look through the, the Sermon on the Mount, if you want to know what all of the Old Testament was about... It was about loving God and loving each other. That is what this is all about. The whole law can be summed up in loving God and loving each other. That is it. So if we're if we're going to move forward our our uh, the pronunciation of our values our beliefs, the expectation on others really doesn't mean anything. It's how we live this out in our lives. And for Abram, this is how he lived it out. This is how he lived it out. He looked at Nahor, and he looked at Milcah, and he looked at Sarah, and I'm not going to say he didn't look at Sarah and go, man, that's a good looking woman. But I don't think that was his motive. Because we see it so many other times in his life. He looked at them and he looked at Nahor and he said, Nahor, and we don't really know the rest of Sarah's story, by the way. We don't really know the rest of her story and, and how they came to this knowledge that she's barren and who her husband, first husband would have been. But, but that has to be how they knew at this point of the story that she was before they even got married. We know he looked at Nahor and said, "I will. Make, she is for me." And I don't mean, and I want to be very careful. I don't mean he felt pity on her. He loved her. He took her. He was. She was his wife. Now, when you know somebody trying to kill him, I mean, he might say, "Well, she's my sister," but he loved her. Now, I can't say that I have a heart like Abram. I can't say that. <laughs> I hope that I have more of a heart like Abram than I did when i before i I know I do than before I was a Christian, and I hope that I have more of one since I became a Christian, and that even in the future, I will have even more of one than I have now. I'm not Abram. Abram gives us an example of what it, of who God wants to work with. This is why we do life together. This is why we're doing the table. This is why we do child care. And I, I, there are people that um, wake up in the morning and are like, "You know what I want to do today? I want to go play with somebody else's kids." But there's a lot of people volunteering in childcare that do not wake up saying that. (laughs) I'm just going to tell you. And you know who you are, right? And the rest of us know who you are too. And they give of themselves and they care for these kids even when it's uncomfortable and even when it's hard. And whatever the reason, we have throughout our entire existence at times had children that have had um, challenges, developmental challenges that make them hard to care for. If we have a heart like Abram, we look at a child who, who doesn't do what you tell them to do, <laughs> and they don't act the way they're supposed to act. And we don't walk away from them. We walk towards them. Even though we get up in the morning and go, hoo! it's gonna be, be a rough morning. Could be. But we love. This is what the church does. This is why when we show up on Sunday mornings, we don't show up on Sunday mornings expecting a good show and a good talk, and then we get to go to lunch, and if it was good enough, we'll come back next week, and if it wasn't, we may not. But we show up, and we don't show up just to see what we're going to get out of it. We see what can we do in, in the lives of other people while we're here. And quite honestly, this type of teaching is my least favorite type of teaching, and yet for most people, this is most of what they have, what they get when they come to church. Because as we've discussed in the first three weeks of this, to, a, to an Eastern mindset, learning doesn't, have, doesn't happen by the transfer of information. Learning happens by the discovery of new truth. But you have to discover it. And we are Western thinkers. If you look at my notes, bullet point, bullet point, sub point, sub point, sub point, sub point, sub, point, sub, point, sub point, and, and a lot of you think exactly the way I do. That's not how they thought. We read Scripture. We don't read Scripture just to memorize it or just to know the story or just to say, well, maybe if I know this and God will be happy with me and He'll help me get a better job or whatever. No, we, we read and it draws us in and we discover. And I have found that in my life, discovery of Scripture has been the thing that has, has lit my Christian life on fire. I, I read it. I try it. It works. i got to read more. i got to try more. It works. And along the way in that process, I experience God working in my life, and I need more of that. And many of you can give the same testimony. If we are going to continue as a church, we cannot continue in a way that we do the best song and dance on Sunday mornings, and if it's good enough, we'll come. We have to be a people who says, those are my family, I love them and loving your family is different from knowing people. I got to know what's going on in your life. I got to know, you know, what you're struggling with. And I'm not going to I'm not going to make you tell me, but I'm going to get to know you so well that you're going to want to tell me. Even when it's hard. We do this. Especially when it's hard. We do this. Now,